0: Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we are here to worship you. We're here to confess to you that we are prone to wonder. And we are prone in our human sinful nature to leave the God we love. Father, we bring ourselves in these moments confessing to you that we are sinners. Sinners in need of grace, sinners in need of the cross. And today, Father, as we approach You, as we approach Your throne, we pray that You melt our our hearts. You melt any hardness of heart, any, any objection that we have towards the cross. Lord, I pray that You convict us of any disobedience, and I pray that You prepare us to continue to worship You. Father, we do thank you for your grace that has been evident to us despite our, our infidelities towards you. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown us. Father, we thank you for the way you have been with us in the, in the weeks past. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give us to hear your word in these moments. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit you would be present in our midst. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts right now and, and allow your word to speak to us. Father, we seek to worship You today. And we seek to worship You in a way that You seek, in the way that You desire us to worship You. Teach us, O Lord, through Your Word. In the name of Jesus and for His glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Well, it's a great time. It's a great joy for me to be back with you. Uh, Last week, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. And I tell you, I uh, realized... why the country is the way it is everything is expensive in washington dc everything well a few years ago i uh, visited a church on the west coast and i was surprised to hear the comment uh, of a member in that church who thanked god that her local church allowed worship to be a part of service at first i was surprised just like some of you were only to realize that what that member was referring to uh, was that the praise and worship band was allowed to play in that church. Well, depending on your upbringing, you may remember a time when certain instruments were banned from worship. And we thought, wow, if we could just use certain instruments in worship, we would really worship the Lord. Have you heard people who would say... If we play this type of music, we would really worship God. I hear you say amen, right? Others would say, well, if we could just dance and raise our hands, we would really worship God. Or others would say, if we could just go back to those hymns, those hymns in that green green book, then we would really worship God, right? Amen, right? Let me read to you a quote from a, a book recently written by David Peterson, one of the most thoughtful books on biblical worship. It's a longer quote, and I just ask for your patience as, as I'm going to be reading about this. But he's addressing the issue of worship and individual dimensions of worship. And here's what David Peterson uh, writes. And he is, the, um, he is an Australian theologian, currently the, the president of the Oak Hill Bible College in, in London. He says the following. Is worship essentially an experience or feeling? Is it to be identified with a special sense of the presence of God or with some kind of religious ecstasy or with expressions of deep humiliation before God? Are there special moments in a Christian meeting when we are Truly worshiping God? Are church services to be measured by the extent to which they enable participants to enter into such experiences? And then he continues and says, Such a subjective approach is often reflected in the comments people make about Christian gatherings, but it has little to do with the biblical teaching on the matter. Furthermore, he says, it creates significant problems for relationships among Christians since not all will share in the same experiences and some will inevitably be made to feel that their worship is inferior. Worship must involve certain identifiable attitudes. But something is seriously wrong when people equate Spiritual self gratification with worship. End of quote. You know, there are people today who fall into the trap of diagnosing the life level of a church, whether a church is alive or dead, based on the type of worship that church has. It is common for young people to accuse churches that do older type of worship or more high church worship and say that it is a dead church because of that type of worship. But let me say it's also, I've heard it, it's not uncommon for older people to accuse younger generations, younger churches based on their worship and simply say that it's a lost worship. It's alive, for sure, but lost. So here's my observation. No matter how you look at it, no matter if you come from the perspective of, of, of one type of tradition or another type of worship tradition, we have a tendency to accuse a worship we don't like as being dead worship. And worse, we accuse to use and, 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 and equate the level of a, of a church's life whether it's alive or dead, based on what kind of worship they do. Well, here's a warning for us. From the words of Jesus to one of the churches in, in Revelation, to the churches of Sardis, let us take he- heed, let us hear the words of Jesus spoken to a church, the church in Sardis, who had the reputation of being alive, but the Lord said it was dead. It doesn't matter what we think about worship. It doesn't even matter what worship experience we like. What really matters is what God thinks about worship and what is it that He considers authentic and true worship. So this morning, I would like to visit and address a subject that is pastorally very difficult to deal with, especially today, especially here in Austin, Texas. But allow me to encourage us to open the Word of God and hear from God what is it that He considers through worship. We we'll just open Scripture to John chapter four, and we're going to be reading from verse one to verse twenty-six. It's a little bit of a longer reading, but it's important for us to address how Jesus teaches on the matter of worship. And in order to see how He teaches on the matter of worship, I would like to ask for us to read the context of when, and how, and to whom He taught it. So, John chapter four verses 1 through 26. And the title of today's message is True Worshippers. True Worshippers. John chapter 4. The word of the Lord says the following to us. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that asks you for a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship, where we must worship, is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers a father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. true worshipers. The context of the story is Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. Now we read this passage a few weeks ago. I already preached on this passage. My wife reminded me this week that I already preached on this passage. So did I make a mistake? No, I did not. But a few weeks ago when, I, when we preached this passage, we were looking at a different angle, at a different question. We were in the series of, of a church, a Christian, and a God for the city, in the city, for the city. But today, we're going to look at this dialogue Jesus had with this woman, not from the perspective of engaging the city, but from the perspective of what exactly did Jesus speak with this woman as, as, she, as He engaged her. Today we're going to look at the subject of, of worship, because there are really two things that come up in this dialogue that Jesus has with this woman. It's the issue of, of Jesus seeking to identify Himself with this with this woman, And notice how he's trying to pick up a conversation by asking for water. He's not really just asking for water. He's really trying to pick a conversation with this woman in order to lead her to identify himself, who he is, as the living water. But as we, as we heard the passage, the story quickly moves on to Jesus calling out in this woman's life some sins, some things that were unresolved. He was talking to this woman about the thirst of her soul, and she did not really get it. She, she thought she was talking about she thought he was talking about his, the, the, the physical thirst, but Jesus was really trying to point out a thirst in her soul, a thirst in her moral life, a thirst in her ethics, in her, a thirst in who she was deep down. and she didn 't pick it up, she didn 't realize. So when Jesus brings out these these th- sin issues in her life, she realizes she has to deal here with somebody who's a prophet because only somebody who has the Spirit of God can really point out the sin in this person's life in such a direct way. So when she be- realizes she is dealing with a prophet, she's, she's switching the conversation. Now it's unclear, it is unclear if she's switching the conversation to a different subject because she didn't want to deal with a sin issue in her life, which is very possible. A lot of us do that today, don't we? Somebody brings out an issue in our lives that is, that is sinful and we quickly want to move the discussion to a different subject. That's one possibility. But there's a second possibility that when this woman realizes she's dealing with a prophet and the person she's speaking with is a prophet, she's addressing another issue because this issue may have been such, such a contentious issue such a hard theological issue, such a divisive issue between Jews and Samaritans. It's like if you have something in your mind that is bugging you, that you've been hearing people debate back and forth, like today people debate about Calvinism and Arminianism, when you have to deal with a prophet, when you have to deal with somebody who seems to be a prophet, you're going to say, okay, if you're really a prophet, can you tell me about this issue? So it's very possible that the reason why this woman changed the conversation, was not in order to avoid sin in her life, but but because there was something that was a divisive issue between Jews and Samaritans, and she said, Okay, can you figure this out for me? And what was that issue? It was the issue of worship. In that day and age, there were worship wars between Jews and Samaritans. And the contention, what they fought over on, on the issue of worship was not style of music, was place of worship. So Jesus is engaged here in a debate of trying to clear up some lines of communication, trying to bring some clarity of how is it that we ought to worship God. And from this dialogue, we can learn from Jesus some principles, some guidelines of what it means to do true worship, what it means to be true worshipers. Don Carson, in his commentary on the book of John, says the fact that the woman brings up the issue of worship as soon as she realizes that Jesus is a prophet shows that worship must have been one of the main points of contention between Jews and Samaritans. Once this issue is addressed, once we hear from Jesus how he responds to the issue, I think we have something to learn as we find ourselves often engaging in different dialogues on what worship is. So let's hear what Jesus has to say to this woman. There are three guidelines I would like to to look at today, and the three guidelines are the following. By the way, they're not the only guidelines we find in Scripture. There's many other places in Scripture that speak about worship. Next week, I'll be continuing to talk about worship. But today, I just want to look at, these, at, some, at some guidelines Jesus gives this woman about worship. And here they are. Know what you worship. Know what you worship. Number two, readjust how you worship. And number three, understand why you worship. Look at at the way Jesus replies to this woman. Once she brings up the issue, once she brings up the the problem, you Jews think we must worship there and we worship here on this mountain. Jesus says, actually there's a phrase he he uses twice, the hour is coming. That's the way Jesus begins his response in verse 21. Look at the words of Jesus, believe me, woman, Jesus declared, a time is coming when... First of all, Jesus is giving us a, a clear picture that there is a new age, there is a new era in God's story of redemption when something will change about the way we worship God. So He's, he's introducing His response by this phrase, and He will repeat this very phrase in verse 23 again. A time is coming when... And, and here's the first response Jesus gives this woman. A time is coming When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus says a time is coming when geographical location will no longer determine true worship. Now, you have to read closely here. Jesus, the issue he brings up with this woman, is not simply one of location, as if it's Mount Gorazim or the city of Jerusalem. Notice... The big problem is the fact that, Jesus, that the Samaritans were worshiping what they do not know. Look at verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. What a sad diagnosis. This is the problem with the Samaritan worship. Jesus doesn't say that their location was the wrong location. Jesus doesn't say that Jerusalem was the right location. He's simply pointing out in the the mind of this woman, she thought location was the big deal. And Jesus said, it's not location. As a matter of fact, the time will come when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming. Here's a problem. Before we talk about what time, what that will look like, we have to clear up some background. We have to clear up some baggage. And here's the baggage Jesus wants to clear up with, with this woman. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Why was this diagnosis given? Samaritans certainly believed in God. More so, Samaritans were expecting the Messiah. After all, this woman said at the end of her speech, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. So how is it that Jesus says to this woman, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. One thing we have to realize about the Samaritan people is that they accepted the five books of Moses, but they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So they accepted part of God's revelation, but not all of it. They, they just clung to that which, di- which they liked, to which they thought was true revelation. There's a sense in which, what, what Don Carson says, and I, I have been... Following him on a few points in this message, but he he says the following the object of their worship is unknown to them. They stand outside of the stream of God's revelation. But here's why. Not they stood outside of God's revelation, not because God did not reveal himself to them. It's because they rejected part of that revelation. They only clung to that which they wanted out of God's revelation. And there's a sense in which Jesus can say, because of that, you really worship what you do not know. Not because they lacked data. Not because they lacked some knowledge of God, but because they lacked the right knowledge of God, the complete knowledge of God, the complete revelation of God. It's like, have you ever heard two boys or two teenagers, or maybe men Talk, for instance, about cars, and and one one person would say to the other something about a particular car, would say all these facts about a particular car, and uh, they were not exactly true, so the other person responds back and says, man, you have no idea what you're talking about. Well, that person just gave the the other guy a bunch of facts. Some are true, but some are incorrect. But because some are incorrect, the response is, you don't know what you're talking about. There's a a sense in which Jesus has the same kind of response to this woman. Yes, you Samaritans have some revelation from God. You worship some parts of God's Word, but because you don't worship it all, because you don't accept the revealed truth of God in its fullness, you worship what you do not know. Not because you don't know it. It's because you know it wrongly. And that is the first major point that jesus brings to this woman he's he's clarifying that before we can talk about worship what true worship is we have to clear the ground know what you worship to make sure that jesus gets this point across and uh, he look at verse 22 part b after he says you samaritans worship what you do not know he moves to the to the jews and says we we worship what we know Notice Jesus doesn't say that the Jewish worship is correct because they worship in Jerusalem. It's not location. It's what you know about what you worship. The meaning of all this is the woman thought location was a big issue, and Jesus says, no, it is not location. It is a lack of knowledge of God. Whatever else was wrong with Jewish worship, says D. Carson, at least it could be said that the object of their worship was known to them you know friends when we think about worshiping god we cannot engage in true worship if we pick and choose only parts of what god has revealed to us in his word is your worship of god based on what you know about god or based on how you want to feel about god You can't worship God truly if you pick and choose what you like about God. Or here's another one. You can't worship God only for those things which you like about God. Many people today engage in worshiping God because He's a God of love. And all, that's all they worship God for. When was the last time you heard someone worship God for the fact that He's a God who disciplines His children? And by the way, it's for our good, not for His good, says the word. When was the last time you worship God because He's a God of vengeance? When we worship God only for those things which we like about God or when we worship God based on just partial revelation of God when we pick and choose our favorite texts of the Bible and that's all we worry about when we worship we might fall into the trap into the warning that Jesus gives to this woman you worship what you do not know. The prerequisite of correct worship of God is that we know what we worship. And it doesn't matter how emotionally charged our worship is or how stoic and meditative our worship is. If our worship is not based on a correct knowledge of God, we do not know what we worship. Let me also say to anyone today who might be listening to this message and you feel that you are, you are interested in spiritual things in general, but you don't really want to commit to anything. You might be interested in spiritual things in general, but you never commit yourself to know and study the object of your worship. It just feels good to you to worship something. And you might call that person God, or you might call that person a, a particular religion. It just feels good to you to worship something. Let me ask you, Do you know what you worship? Is your worship enabling you to know more of the God you worship? I'm not asking you if you have some data about the object of your worship, but do you have the correct knowledge of that which deserves your worship? The first thing Jesus does to this woman, to the Samaritan woman, is to correct her worship and, and saying, the first guideline is this, know what you worship. But once this is cleared up, once Jesus tells the woman, a time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jesus says again, there's a second line in verse 23. There's a second phrase, a second time the same phrase. Jesus says, yet the time is coming. And now he adds something else in verse 23. And he says, yet the time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And here's Jesus is finally dawning some new revelation that in God's story of redemption, there is a new era. Something new is, is developing in the way worshipers ought to approach God the Father. What does that look like? What is it? Well, the worshipers, Jesus says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What is this phrase meaning? What does it mean? that in the new age, in the new era of God's story of redemption, and by the way, that is now our era, because Jesus said in His very life, in His very ministry, that time has come. What is it that now describes this new age of worshiping God that is different from what happened before? First of all, let let me make a few notes. Notice the phrase says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It doesn't say in spirit and in truth. Why is that a small detail such a big detail? Because spirit and truth are not two different entities. They're, they're, I, they're, the, they're talking about the same reality. It's worship God the Father in spirit and truth. They're, the, they're, they're talking about the same reality. They're not talking about two different identities as if we could... Sp- Worship God in spirit, but not in truth. Or as if we could worship God in truth, but not in spirit. This is a first hint, first hint, small hint of a major point that this phrase is not talking about the distinction between internal and external. There's something more. It encompasses that, but there's something way more than that. So what is the meaning of of worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? The meaning of the word spirit, first of all, is not our spirit. Sometimes we think that what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is now finally saying, now you can worship God inwardly. As if now the new worship of God will have to make a distinction and a choice between outward worship and inner worship between religious ritual and the worship of the heart. But the the meaning of the word spirit here in this phrase is not our spirit. How do I know that? Well, there are a few few hints. There are a few clues in the passage. First of all, look at at verse uh, 24 when Jesus says, God is spirit. There's a sense in which whatever the word spirit means in verse 23 has to be connected closely with what Jesus says in verse 24. God is talking about His spirit, not our spirit. But there's a few other, there's a few other links, connections in the Gospel of John where truth and spirit show up together and they're closely linked together. And the, the, the most clear place where that shows up is in John 16, verses 13 and then verse 24. You don't have to turn there. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to the disciples, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Notice, Spirit and truth, they're closely linked together. And then He says in verse 24 in John 16, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. In other words, the Spirit, the, the role of the Spirit, the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, one of them is to declare and remind the disciples of the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what Jesus has taught. Another place where truth and Spirit show up together in the same passage, in the same context, is actually in John chapter 3, just before the passage we read. In the dialogue Jesus has with Nicodemus. By the way, remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you are a teacher who teaches a lot of great things, a teacher sent from above. And Jesus immediately interrupts his discussion. He's going to correct his misunderstanding. And he talks about the new birth. And what, what is it that he talks about that new birth? Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here the Spirit's work is to bring about a new birth. So, what does it mean to worship in Spirit? It means to worship in that which the Spirit spirit brings about. Not our Spirit, but God's Spirit. It means to worship that which is made possible because of the reality of being born again. Someone may say, well, but in the story of Nicodemus, we only see the role of the Spirit. Where is truth? Well, read the rest of the story of Nicodemus. Jesus told him about the work of the Spirit in creating this new birth, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He says, how can a man, an old man, go back into his mother's wombs and be born again? And Jesus says, verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. Truth. This time, it is, the difference is not between Jews and Samaritans. This time, it is between Jesus and the teacher of the law. To worship God in, tr- in spirit and truth does not mean, is not dealing with the distinction between the inner heart and the outside reality of that worship. By the way, here's another major point. If that is what it was, we misunderstand the entire Old Testament. From the beginning, the issue of the heart was at the center of worship with the Old Testament people of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, and 6. Remember what that passage says after, Jesus gives a ten, after God gives Moses Ten Commandments. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. From the beginning of the, pe- of the life of the people of God, the heart was supposed to be engaged in worshiping God. And all throughout the the Old Testament, the prophets rebuked the people of God and reminded the people of God that it's not about their ritual, but it is about the heart that mattered in worship. So we cannot say that here Jesus is telling us that a new age is coming when worshipers will finally be able to worship God in their hearts. There's nothing new about that. That was revealed in the Old Testament. That was true based not on John 4, but based on Deuteronomy 6. So then the question comes, then what is new here when Jesus says a new day is coming? A new time is coming. What is it new? If the heart was supposed to be engaged from the beginning, what is new? Here's what's new. A time is coming. When true worshipers will be able to engage, worship God the Father because of the work of the Spirit in their lives. Because of what the Spirit has done in their lives to bring new birth. That was not possible prior to the revelation of Jesus. So to worship God in spirit and truth, the very first meaning, the meaning of the word in spirit means to worship God in the in, because of the Spirit and because of the work of the Spirit the Spirit has done in our lives, because of the new creation, because of the new birth we can we have we can now experience. And what does it mean to worship God in Spirit and Truth? Remember the words of Jesus in John fourteen six when he told the disciples, "I am the way, the Truth, and the Life." And remember what was the role of the Spirit in all of this? His role was to illumine the work of Christ, to glorify Christ. So there's a sense in which to worship God in spirit and truth means to worship God based on the work of the Spirit in our lives to create a new birth, and to worship the Spirit based on His work of revealing us the truth about who Christ is, what He has done, what He has taught us. That is the meaning of what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. There's a sense in which this is Trinitarian worship. We worship the Father because of the work of the Spirit in our lives who brought us a new birth and who brought to us the truth about the work of Christ on our behalf. There might be people here today, very religious people, who have not experienced new birth. It doesn't matter how well you sing. It doesn't matter how emotional you feel in worship or even how much you seek to be spiritually in tune. A person who has not experienced a new birth cannot worship in spirit, no matter how spiritual, no matter how emotional that worship is. To worship in spirit and truth means to find delight in what the spirit and the truth of God has done in our life. I'm reminded of a a friend of mine. He was saying something in a very laughing way, in a a funny way. But there's something funny and something so true about that. He was a new believer, and he said, You know, I've often wondered, Why is it that I had to become a Christian now at this age? Why, Why couldn't I have become a Christian like a week before dying? So I could really enjoy all this life. You know, so I could really enjoy all the pleasures of life. And, you know, just be saved, just stand close to dying, you know, just a week before dying. Now, of course, he said it in a funny way. He said it, this was one of his thoughts once in a while. But do you know what, what this means for us? To worship in spirit and truth means to delight in what the spirit has done in our lives in creating new birth. To delight in the truth that the Spirit r- reveals to us about who Christ is and what He has done for us. It's not to have some just an inner worship. It's way more than that. Worshipping in spirit and truth does not mean just to worship in our spirit. It's to worship in the work of the Spirit that has done in our lives. Does that make sense? It's a different way than I'm hearing all the time people talk about this passage of what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. And I want us to correct that understanding. It is to worship on what the Spirit of God has done in our lives to reveal the truth of God, the truth of Jesus, for what He has done, what He has taught us for us and on our behalf. So, to worship in spirit and truth is to worship as a new creation, to worship as a new, as a born-again person. You see, friends, we are tempted to evaluate a good worship service based on how well the worship leaders are able to raise the emotional level of the worshipers. And it is utterly wrong. A good worship service is that which enables believers to approach the Father not because of a particular type of music, but because of the work of the Spirit in their own lives and because of the work of the truth that has been revealed to them about Christ, which affects their own lives. That's why, brothers and sisters, when we, when we approach God in worship, no matter how emotionally engaged we are, if that worship does not engage the truth about who Christ is and what He has done in us, and the cleansing that He wants to do in our lives. If, that, if, if, we, if we engage in worship, and it might be very emotional, it might be very physically engaging, but if there's sin in our lives that we know about, if there is unrepentant sin, if there's constant unbelief, and we're not, if, the, if, if we're not dealing with that, there is no true worship, no matter how emotionally engaged we are in that worship. Because worship in spirit and truth means worship on the base of the new creation that the Spirit of God has done in our lives. Worship on the work of the Spirit in our lives. Worship on the the truth of what Christ has done for us. So worship service, the the, the efficiency of a worship service ought to be evaluated on how effectively it leads us to engage the work of the Spirit in our lives and the truth of God and the truth of Christ in our lives. F- private, individual lives. Know what you worship. Readjust how you worship. And number three, and very briefly, understand why you worship. Understand why is it that Jesus says, now a time is coming. From now on, this is, this, this is how we're supposed to worship the Father. Why? why? Why this way and no other way? Why this way and not the old way? Well, first of all, Look at verse 23. Big reason for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is a huge point for understanding the essence of worship. You see, we assume that when we worship God, we are seeking God. That is only partially true. This verse is telling us that when we worship God, God is seeking us. And God is seeking certain types of worshipers. No worshipers. Not any worship will do it. Not any worship will make it, no matter how you feel about it. God is seeking certain types of worshipers. So just because we come to worship God does not mean that God is worshiping with us. Does not mean that we are engaging in true worship with God. Some people today want to define worship on their own terms. Some have the attitude that if they manage to get out of bed on Sunday morning and show up to church once in a while or even if they are able to show up to church every Sunday that that will automatically determine true worship. Wrong. Some people even say well if I manage to do all this for God God better be happy. As if we come to worship for God's sakes. No, we come to worship because it benefits us. And God will not take any worshipers. I know we live in the age of grace. I know we live in the age of, of God revealing His grace and love to us. But this passage says God is seeking certain types of worshipers and no other. My dear friend, if there's one thing we, we can learn about why worship this way, it's because of this reason. Because God is the one who determines how we ought to worship Him. We are not asked to determine that for ourselves. And here's, why. here's another reason why it's not in the passage, but in, the, in, in a particular phrase in the passage, but in, the, in light of what we have said. Why is it that God is calling for such worshipers? Here's why. Because Jesus has come. Because He has come to bring a new age. And He's the one in the Gospel of John who's bringing the Spirit. In the whole Gospel, in all of the Gospels, it's only in John that we see Jesus breathing the Spirit on His disciples. Because Jesus is making making all this possible. Jesus says, now because the Spirit has come, now because the Son has been revealed, now because I'm revealing to you the truth about who the Messiah is, now you can worship God in a different way based on that revelation. That's why we can no longer worship like in the Old Testament. And I'm not talking about be here external or internal. That's not the issue. We're talking about accepting the revelation of who Jesus is, accepting the work of the Spirit, that his new birth. That is the only grounds on which we can worship God in a true way. Once all these things take place, the question is what about you and me? Today we looked at three phrases. Know what? Readjust how, understand why. And all of these have to do with what we worship, how we worship, and why we worship. Friends, the church is not a place of worship. The church is a people who worship. The church is not a place that guarantees or limits worship. Just because you come here to worship on Sunday mornings does not mean that you're ready to worship. But just because you come here to worship doesn't mean that worship has to stop here. We don't start worship when we start singing. And we don't stop worship when I start preaching. And we don't stop worshiping when we leave this place. Worship is that which ought to happen regardless of place, regardless of time. And then the question is, well, then why do we call this place a place of worship? Why did I encourage you and welcome you today? Welcome. To a play a time of worshiping God. Here's why. Because although worship happens and is based on what happens individually with us, worship is not just an individual experience. It's also a corporate experience. That's why the church is a people who worship God. We worship. If we worship all week long on our own, why do we gather here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights to worship? Because worship has an individual experience and a corporate dimension. We worship on Sundays in spirit and truth in a way that none of us can worship on our own because one of the key roles that the Spirit does in us, what He works in us, is not only the new life, the new birth. He is also the one who creates the people of God. He's the one who creates a unity among the people of God. And when we come to worship God in spirit and truth, we worship in the work of the Spirit that He does not only in our lives individually, but in our lives as a community. And that's why there's two dimensions, not an either-or of worship, individually, privately, or corporately. It's both and. What makes worship authentic? What makes true worshipers? It is when we worship Not simply as newborn people, but when we worship, when our worship is based on the work of the Spirit in our individual lives and in our lives as a community. That means that true worship always reminds us of the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our community based on the work of Christ on our behalf. So let me ask you today, do you know what you worship In the Gospel of John, it was not just a Samaritan woman who heard this question. Ultimately, it was Nicodemus himself, because Nicodemus could not believe the truth about who Jesus is. What about you? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, today we come to you humbly, recognizing that there are times in our lives when we may have approached you with wrong expectations. It is possible that oftentimes we have come before you on our terms, not on your terms. Father, forgive us for those moments. Father, if there's someone here today who may have been to church a long time, may have been a part of a church a long time, but they have never experienced the work of the new birth that the Spirit creates in us, or they have never experienced the unity that the Spirit does in a community, Lord, I pray that you enable that person to experience in a fresh way the work of the Spirit in their lives based on the truth of Christ on their behalf. Father, cleanse us. Help us readjust the way we worship. Help us understand that the time has come when true worshipers can only approach a Father in spirit and truth. In the name of Jesus we pray for His glory and honor. Amen.